Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president of ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we're excited to welcome Dr. Peter Faustino to the podcast to talk to us about what an individualized education plan, or IEP, can do to open up new opportunities for your child. Dr. Faustino is a school psychologist and works as an expert advisor for the new Autism Speaks IEP guide. He operates his own private practice working with students and families with developmental delays. With back to school right around the corner, I'm sure there are a ton of parents sitting on the edge of their seats to hear your tips, Dr. Faustino, on how to get the most out of their child's IEP program. Dr. Faustino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for the invite. I'm excited to be here and to have a conversation. So, Well, I'm excited to learn, but in order for me to start learning, I always want to know, where did you get started to be involved with the autism community? So as a school psychologist, you will have seen so much, but oftentimes there's a connection to autism or a family, or how did you get involved? Whenever I think about this topic, I usually go back to the very first year I was a school psychologist and um, sort of got thrown into some of this work because of a student that um, entered the school building with very little information about her needs. And I think, you know, that dating back 25 years, um, it, it was a bit of a different landscape when we start talking about IEPs or the stigma around certain conversations with regards to disabilities or mental health or anything along those lines. Um, and as we started to partner and work with this particular family, I think it became um, even more evident that it was autism and that some of the unique behaviors really look like that. And so I think for me, I was hooked. I, 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 it was something maybe that we didn't cover enough in graduate school 25 years ago, and I wanted to know more. Um, but then I would say, just fast forward a little bit to me working in a middle school, and there was a young man, uh, I can say his name because I've told the story numerous times, but Matthew Harris, who knocked on my door and said, can I talk to you about something, Dr. Pete? And I said, yeah, and working in a middle school, I didn't know what I was going to get you know, when he walked in the door. And what he said to me was, my little brother was just diagnosed with autism, and I don't know how to talk to anybody about this. I haven't told any of my friends or my teachers. And what we ended up doing was having a few conversations about ways to spread awareness and just sort of like educate the school building about what was going on. Um, And he ultimately made a connection to Autism Speaks, which was sort of um, starting, evolving, growing. And we realized that there was, um, you know, a lot of organizations doing this work before us, but that there was still a lot of room to do some of this in schools. And this IEP guide is just sort of one of those outgrowths of some of the volunteer work that I've been doing. Well, it's much appreciated. Uh, that power of, of resources, the power of community, the power of having somebody to be able to help drive you in the right direction yeah. is just a stepping stone. Because I'll tell you, the landscape of autism and of IEP services It's hard for even professionals at times to navigate. I guess maybe we can start at the beginning as how or when 
does a parent start planning their child's education path? I would say begin as early as possible. Um, you know, sometimes I'm I'm straddling both worlds um, as a practitioner in the schools. I'm seeing it from one lens, and then having a private practice, I'm seeing it from another lens. For a period of time, I was serving as an administrator, so I'm sort of looking at it from a couple different angles. And um, what I would generally tell both, you know, parents and clinicians is um, start the process early, start the planning early, start the conversations and the partnerships as early as you possibly can. I think the benefit just, you know, the more time you spend having conversations about kids, uh, the more you come to some solutions that really yield, uh, I think, good benefits. So uh, do you have to have a diagnosis to have an IEP? I mean, what's the, what's the process of being able to identify, yeah, you know, I think my child has these needs. Yeah. I don't have a psychological diagnostics done. So I have no diagnosis for autism. I have no diagnosis for an intellectual delay. Yeah. How do I still get these services? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that it's a great question. And I, th I think the easiest answer is yes, you do need a diagnosis. I mean, when we talk specifically about IEPs, although wouldn't it be great if everybody had their own individualized education plan, right? You enter school, you've got this document that talks about your strengths, your weaknesses, goals each year, right? It's sort of a, a little bit of a contract as to what's going to happen um, mapped out for you. I mean, that just sounds like it would be really amazing. Sounds but... wonderful. <laughs> I, I'm not sure uh, most schools are you know, going to be able to provide that for every single student, but what we recognize is that for students um, who have an educationally handicapping condition, that what we really need to do is sort of outline more specifically the agreement as to how we're going to educate the student and provide you know, certain um, um, mandates or certain um, you know, uh, um, guarantees as far as their education goes. But as a, as a school psychologist, is there any overlap then? I mean, you said that a diagnosis is typically required or needed. Um, but between that idea of classifying somebody under an IEP and receiving medical services, is there overlap? Can those two be blended together somehow? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think schools have evolved and and grown in this area recognizing that sometimes the lines get blurred a little bit or that even when we talk specifically about individuals with autism that sometimes um, they don't fit the traditional molds um, and and you know children or or individuals diagnosed with autism there's a, you know the old um, saying of you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism so there are certainly times I think where even if you are um, um, diagnosed with, you know, autism spectrum disorders, it doesn't necessarily guarantee or equate that you'll need an IEP. And then vice versa, there are probably individuals that have yet to receive the diagnosis who really would benefit from, I think, some of the, the services of the IEP. Quite often, my fallback is to contact the school. I, I'm, I'm certainly a proponent of contacting the school psychologist in almost every state, even though there's a shortage of our profession. There, there are school psychologists in every school district and in, in most school buildings that you could reach out to, that you can contact and start that conversation about where can I get some help, right? These are my concerns about my child's education. Um, what would you recommend? And ultimately, in some cases, it's going to be that IEP. So in, in, in that conversation, and just putting myself into the lens of a parent, 
Yeah. I walk in and I don't even know the first thing about what an IEP is. What should I be expecting? Yeah. Like, who's going to be in this process? Who's making the final decision? <laughs> How do you explain those steps? What What would that that yeah. pathway look like for a family? It, it, you know, Jeff. Truthfully, it can be very overwhelming and and scary, right? I I think of the number of times that I've. Um, you know, spoken to parents or been in meetings where they enter the room and they say, whoa, I didn't realize so many people were going to be in here. Um, and while it, you know, can vary a little bit from state to state, quite often you are going to get a special education teacher, you know, who understands special education services. You're going to get someone who's chairing the meeting. You will get a school psychologist who understands assessment and identification, but also the interventions and, and uh, data and research methods. You'll quite often get a general education teacher. The parents will be present. And to whatever extent possible, we encourage students to be there as well. So even if that's the core group, right, you've already got quite a few um, people who are in the room having conversations around this. I think that's the reason we sort of, um, you know, I helped Autism Speaks develop a guide because exactly what you just said is what can I expect and where do I begin and what should I know? Um, the guide contains a lot of that information. Um, and the IEP meeting won't necessarily be the very first step nor will it be the first conversation and nor should it be the last conversation when you are a parent concerned about your child and the school year or their educational progress. And coming from the medical world, just uh, thinking about this process you're describing and mm -hmm. being in a room where you have so many specialists yeah. who are there to evaluate, analyze, create, a, that sounds like a wonderful process to be a part of, <laughs> As long as it's not daunting, do these do these meetings always go seamlessly, or I mean, or do you nope. sometimes have challenges? <laughs> and, and are there are there things you need to be aware of that could be pitfalls? Yeah, you know, um, it, it reminds me of uh, a friend, Gary Mayerson, who is an attorney and just a you know a brilliant advocate um, and does a lot of volunteer work with Autism Speaks. We were talking years ago about how to sort of like you know improve some of the services or um, help schools just become more aware and attuned to autism and I think Gary being an attorney was coming from the mindset of like um, we have to sue, right? These are this is a legal document. There are legal implications. If we just make sure that we focus on those, you know, legal requirements, uh, we'll get schools to change. And being a practitioner as a school psychologist, I was like, no, 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 no. We just need to educate everybody. If we just make people aware, right? They want to do the right thing. They want to they want to help children, and they're they're really on the side of right. But but we just need more time to educate them, or train them, or make them aware. And I think the answer is both. And that's really where I think an IEP is sort of the, the convergence of those two worlds. Um, it is a conversation. It is uh, an awareness activity, right? When you're meeting to talk about a child's individual strengths and weaknesses, what they'll need to to, to, to have, um, to be successful, what their dreams and goals and the direction that they're moving in is. But it's also a contract with the school or with those providers to say, this is what we are guaranteeing or this is what we are providing because we believe that if we um, add these elements to your child's education plan, they will make that you know progress and succeed kind of thing. So.
Yeah. I mean, and it seems like what, what you're describing is it's never a bad thing to ask for additional help. I know some states have parent centers that have uh, designated parent advocates that work yeah. to be able to help support this process yeah. to stay away from those frustrations. Um, but is is this something that you could, as a parent, invite whoever you feel is going to be beneficial to that conversation into the meeting? Yes, absolutely. And and um, I love parent advocates. Um, there are educational advocates. You know, um, sometimes there's even just a friend or a neighbor or someone in the community who, you know, acts as a parent representative to say, well, I went through this process with my older child or just recently, and I'm just sitting here to answer your questions, to lend some support. I also think it's really important when parents engage with um, private providers uh, for anything that we have that information because, you know, as much as I think school teams do an amazing, wonderful, you know, hardworking job, um, they're using the perspective in the lens of the school building, right? I mean, they're seeing a child from eight to three. Um, and, and there's a lot of wonderful information there, but there's also the hours from three to eight, you know, AM that parents and providers will, you know, see. And I think you really have to have all of that information when you're developing a plan. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I mean, even, even, IEPs, educational planning, or in medical planning is having that provider that maybe is spending 25 hours a week with your child, yeah. even just be there to be somebody to ask questions or pose questions to. Yep. It's important. It's an important data point to have, yeah. um, even if they're not guiding the plan, is that they're a voice in that process, which I think is key. Uh, but you did mention earlier, and I think this is probably one of the more important people to be a part of the team, is uh, for self-determination purposes is the child. Um, so it, it, tell me something, I, I would imagine every single time, every child will bring something slightly different <laughs> to this discussion because they're advocating for their desires, their needs. Uh, do you have any uh, experience with children being in that IEP process and what that could look like? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to, to whatever extent, inviting the student themselves to the meeting is just so important. Um, I, I, I've worked at every um, stage in school, so elementary, middle, high school. And I remember in elementary school, even if a child wasn't able to attend the meeting, parents would sometimes bring a photo of their child. And it was, it was such a wonderful reminder of like, this is who and why we are meeting. This is what it's all about. Let's stay focused on this you know, photograph of this, you know, little girl or little boy. And, and um, I think it humanizes the process a little bit that sometimes can have so many different moving parts. In middle school or high school, it's, it's critically important to invite, you know, children to attend the meetings. I, what I've often found is in the middle school years, you can invite them to a portion of the meeting. You can invite them in, talk a little bit about the, the progress of the year, maybe their hopes for the following year, and then they can sort of be excused and you might be able to do some of the, um, you know, the detail work. Uh, when students get to the high school level, I really love for them to be in full attendance of the meeting because it's such an integral part of their transition planning of their future. And, and I think, you know, you were alluding to it, but, but I use the term a lot of self-advocacy, right? Of just, this is what I want out of my school experience, out of my life. This is what I think and feel. And even for children who are nonverbal or, you know, more severely impacted, there is always room for them at the table. There is always a way to help um, with the communication of those things. What I find sometimes is funny is, is what those 
um, students will often ask for, or they'll help remind us of what's really important in a meeting. We may want to spend time on, um, you know, test scores or setting goals or, um, you know, um, the, the, the number of minutes of a service that's going to be provided. And I've had students that want to, you know, have us write into an IEP uh, guaranteed uh, pizza every day at lunch, but it's got to be the square kind, not the not the other kind, or you know, longer recess, or they want doubling up on computer classes or whatever it might be. So sometimes there's a lot of humor in involving the student. It's it's refreshing. It sounds like that that particular student might be consulting with my children. <laughs> I think this might just be going across the board. I had no idea that square pizza was the most popular thing in schools. Oh, but. there's something about it. I don't know what, but there's something there. Um, that it and, and you had you had really kind of hit on this, but I, I actually now that you're talking about including the child in the IEP process and the the stages of being able to do that, um, yeah. I love the fact that bringing a picture by a family, I think that that is so important just to realize who we are and who we're here for. But I also think that this is potentially a skill building opportunity that a lot of kids don't get the chance to do in general is how do I go in and advocate for my own needs? How do I sit down in, a, in this setting and talk about what I really care about? And, you know, I, I think about my middle school years, I think about my children. I don't know that they have the chance to be a part of their own education plan. And it's, it's a real blessing to have that opportunity to kind of talk through how to meet my goals, how to meet my needs. So I think it's kind of a neat prospect. Um, how frequently do these meetings occur? I, I know that it should be based off process or progress, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you know, there's, there's guidance in the law that, that talks um, about more specifically about annual review meetings. So at least once a year, you will be opening up this document. You will be, you know, looking at the progress from the year behind, making plans for the upcoming year. Um, and then built into the to the law and to the system around IEPs is is reevaluation. So once every three years, taking what you know might be considered like a deeper dive into assessing um, or you know the benchmarks of their of their progress, or just looking at the document itself, even asking the question like, does the child still need or benefit or require an IEP, or do we start to declassify? Do we need to consider you know alternatives if things are not progressing? To the, to the degree that we want. But um, even with that said, that, that you're guaranteed an annual review meeting and that every three years you're going to get, you know, additional sort of like assessment information, um, you know, uh, sometimes that's a major component of what the school psychologist will do. Um, parents can request review meetings at any time you know, that, that they um, have an IEP or that they're, they are concerned about um, a student's progress. And so, you know, I do, wouldn't want your listeners or parents to think like, oh gosh, okay, I've got to wait till the end of the year before I get to say anything about the progress um, or I've got concerns, you know, when do we do this? Sometimes it can be as simple as an email or a phone call, but then other times you want to come back together as that whole team and have a conversation um, for, for whatever reasons. Um, the other bit of information that's important is that um, there are quarterly progress reports that are built into IEPs as well. So once you sit down at that 
annual meeting and you say, okay, here are the goals that we are, you know, reasonably expecting from your child, given all of the services and the accommodations and what we've built into this document, uh, at least four times a year, you're going to get little updates that say, I think the child is progressing satisfactorily. I think they're gradually doing this. We haven't started this goal yet, or we've achieved this goal. And isn't that good news? We'll move on to the next goal kind of thing. So there are lots of different things built into the system, but sometimes I do think that parents feel like everything's got to come out at that one meeting or it's got to be like a three-hour meeting just to cover everything. And the truth is, it, you know, there should just be open dialogue and communication all year long. And if you've got concerns, you can always request a review, a program review. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I, I look at the IEP and I look at a one-year process uh, yeah. that that's guaranteed. But the goal is inclusivity. The goal is, is that over time, we're reducing the need for accommodations, the need for these modifications that are put into an IEP plan. And they're happening quarterly. They're happening throughout the year. And it's nice to be able to get together, if you can, yeah. to figure out how do I promote more inclusivity? How do I create a more of an open environment for my child to contribute wherever they want? So yeah. what is, I mean, what's the value in your, in your uh -huh. vision from a school psychologist as creating an inclusive system? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm glad you brought it up because I would say in the last 15 years, um, that has been the primary focus of, of my efforts and my work about um, creating a more welcoming, inclusive environment, um, in particular in schools for, for children with special needs, um, because I think it benefits everyone. Um, I, I really have seen it firsthand. And, you know, like any change or like any sort of like mindset, right, it can be a little scary. It, it can be a little, you know, concerning about what what it's going to look like. But um, there's a there's a great comic strip. Um, I don't know if it's far side, but it's it's this picture of uh, a school, the entrance to a school building. And it had snowed. I mean, there's snow all over the steps in the front of the school. And the, um, you know, uh, the custodian or the school leader is shoveling the steps and there are kids waiting. But right next to the steps is a ramp to get into the school. And there's a student in a wheelchair who says, you know, um, can you clear off the ramp so I can get in? And the person clearing the steps says, well, you know, I have to clear the steps first, you know, to, to, to let these other students get in first. There's more of them. And the person in the wheelchair says, but if you clear the ramp, we can all go in. And it's like the most powerful comic strip that I've seen. I use it sometimes when I'm doing presentations because I think it hits the, 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 that element of, if you plan for students with special or unique learning needs, right, you can create this universal design. You can actually benefit everybody in the classroom. And I have seen it. I mean, um, quite often my examples that, that pop up into my head are really the ones around, you know, sometimes when we um, are looking to educate students, you know, with special needs and, and autism, again, is just so wonderfully unique. Um, we, we, you know, we're, we're putting our neurotypical brains into the mix and we're having this conversation like, okay, well, we're going to teach this social skill or we're going to teach this reading skill or whatever it is, thinking that we've accounted for all of the fluidity that happens in a school. And when you put, you know, uh, 
uh, or when you you create this inclusive environment and you have a student in a more mainstream classroom or general ed setting, all of a sudden these things pop up that you never accounted for. That even if you had sat there for you know hours or days or weeks, you would never have come up with you know an example of what it was. Both good and bad, right? I mean, kids will model behavior in that in that general ed setting that I think becomes wonderfully informative to say aha, I never thought about that. So I'm now going to have to work on that skill or teach that skill or add that to the IEP or develop this into the plan. And that is really the stepping stone to them leaving school and going out into the world and being a, you know, a successful contributing member of society. And that has to begin in schools. We cannot, you know, create these sort of like separate segregated spaces that we think we're going to, you know, create these wonderful educational plans. We've got to really kind of put everybody in the mix. So when you're talking about inclusion, Dr. Mastino, one of the things that's been unique to the field over the last maybe one to two years is the idea of mental health parity and Mm -hmm. the exclusion of denying care based off where it's being provided. Uh, When I think about inclusion, I think let's try and figure out whatever services possible are going to help the child to be able to access the normative environment, uh, the environment of their peers. Hmm. Um, Do you ever see a time where IEPs are going to include more of the medical model of care and make sure that maybe ABA or behavioral health services are included into treatment? You know, it's it's a fantastic question. Um, I mean, like some of the things that we're talking about, it's it's complex. Um, you know, the the way IEPs are written and where they originated. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember Public Law ninety four one forty two, which got turned into IDEA and 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 all these other laws. Really, did start as educational. Um, you know protections for students with with disabilities. And while I think one of the original goals was really to improve access, I I think it was originally a conversation around improving access in the school building. Um, You know, to your to your question and to your point, uh, the last two years, 18 months to two years that, that we've been experiencing the pandemic and and COVID has created closures in schools. It's been a fascinating sort of experiment that we may not have had prior to this or, or, you know, um, you know, I hope that it's a silver lining um, to some of all of this um, trauma and tragedy is that we might not have to necessarily, you know, contain all of the services to the four walls of the school building. Um, And even though I've been involved in the conversation around mental health, my entire career, I think it's sort of one of those moments in time that we are talking about mental health in ways that that we just never did before. And and you know, e- even more specifically around autism, I mean, um sometimes we've gotten so focused on the conversation or the word autism or we've focused on, you know, what are the challenges in schools, what are the challenges in work and employment. Um, we haven't had enough of those conversations around mental health and autism, um, the anxiety, the depression, um, some of the things that that can be sort of comorbid with, you know, um, a diagnosis or with the experience of autism. 
And um, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be an interesting future. Um, I think these conversations are starting to happen right now. I think we're doing a lot of lookbacks and reflections, and there's even some research and data that's starting to come out, um, just really hitting the peer review journals now. So I think it's going to be an exciting time to have these conversations and see what evolves. Yeah, and I think that that does open up a lot of dialogue for the future. And there's a lot of things I think that are being done really well, hmm. but there's also things that we can all do better on. If you were if you were to have your checklist of, you know, what are some of the things that we need to look to improve? It sounds like incorporating mental health into the IEP process might be one. What might be the, the next two things that you'd say, you know, as a field or a school psychologist or as an IEP team? These are things that we can do better. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think the, the two that pop, I mean, so I'll throw mental health in because I'm a psychologist. So, so, you know, mental health would definitely be at the top, but um, we talked about the other one. I would say it's that self-advocacy piece. I, I really think um, we have to do a better job of really finding an individual's voice, um, you know, to be created and to represent um, those IEP meetings, you know, parents do a wonderful job, uh, school professionals do a wonderful job, but but I don't think it's ever going to take away from the individual um, being there representing themselves. And then the, the second one or the third one that I would add in probably would be this concept of transition planning. You know, sometimes we can get very focused on an individual year or we chunk the years and we say, oh, it's elementary school, middle school, high school. But the truth is the IEP is the um, guiding document for 21 years uh, when individuals leave school, sometimes at 18 or up to 21 is the is the legal guarantee. Uh, there are so many more years that they are in, you know communities, they're in our world, they're in civilization. And we have to really be thoughtful about making the first 21 years uh, preparation for the remaining part of their life and, and making it a successful one, a happy one um, for them. So I think we could do transition planning, starting that conversation about what does it look when you leave school, we could do that a little bit earlier. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And that seems to be a hot topic right now. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's something that we failed at in a lot of healthcare services. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you look at rehab, when you look at um, yeah. physical rehab, yeah. is that you don't always have that opportunity to take what you've learned, what you've, what you've built on to yeah. be able to make it applicable across yeah. the lifespan of a, of a child. Um, I, I, now I, I know that there's something that we're all going to have to address right now is that, um, I mean, we talked about things we can get better at, but we're all going to face a challenge at the moment, which is coming back after a year of chaos with COVID. Mm -hmm. Not that that year of chaos is even over right now, because I think that we're still trying to navigate some very challenging weather. Um, but you have kids that had a different education plan for a full year, which... Mm -hmm could have set some children back. Um, there's things that we've learned, but tell me what it is about this year that maybe scares you the most and and then follow that up maybe with the idea of what did we learn from this experience of COVID about our processes or about some of the, mm. some of the children that are involved? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I would say that I'm seeing some of the data and, and in other sources, I, I think it's confirming a little bit of, you know, my, my personal perspective on this, but that um, 
when we shifted to this, you know, complete online learning, um, we really exposed, I think, uh, some of the inequities that existed in our in our society, in our communities, in our education system. So, you know, there were schools that pivoted and, you know, created these amazing online learning communities and, and um, students were able to kind of continue accessing curriculum or even, you know, um, found some, some, you know, uh, skills within themselves around organization or around structuring their learning that, um, that I think, you know, that I think was a pleasant surprise. Um, unfortunately, I think in, in many regards, what ended up happening when schools closed was students really lost the routines that schools create. You know, the fact that you get up early and you go to a building and you, you know, have a schedule or you've got these embedded schedules that, you know, just sort of guide you to do the work that you do. Uh, we lost the relationships that exist in schools, right? I mean, much of the work we're talking about, um, I mean, maybe we said it around like we're creating this document with, you know, uh, words and plans on it, but it really represents an individual, right? I mean, at the end of the day, even the services that we're providing sometimes are about those relationships that you develop um, in schools, in school communities, with school professionals. And and then really the resources that existed. I mean, some of the resources, uh, in particular, when we talk about, you know, autism or, or certain other conditions, can only be provided, you know, one-on-one -on -one or in small group settings or, you know, uh, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy. I mean, it becomes very, speech therapy, right? It becomes very, very challenging to provide those um, through a, a tele, telemodel. So um, I, I think the impact was, was significant. I, I, I mean, I think people were feeling it, people are talking about it, but what I worry about is that when we return to some in-person learning, or, or a full in-person learning, that there's going to be this, uh, you know, initial response to say, well, let's catch up, you know, let's, it, it's almost like running a mar. I ran a marathon years ago. I'll only do it once, right? One and done, because it, it was probably one of the greatest challenges of my life, but also one of the, the greatest things that I've done. But if someone told me, you know, in the middle of the marathon or towards the end of the marathon, if I tripped and fell, and I had to get up and they said, okay, well now you got to run faster. Right. I think I would have said, no way I'm quitting. I can't, I just fell down. I'm exhausted. I can't run faster. You got to give me a little bit of time to just kind of get my bearings. So I do worry that we're going to return to school and people are going to say, we got to catch up. You got to run faster. And, uh, I, I, I think we've got to find the balance in the learning and the healing. I, that is uh, good advice. And, um, I guess the bad advice is running a marathon. I don't think you'd ever <laughs> to do that one, but uh, the rest of it, I say, is super important. Uh, the, uh, the, the, it, it does scare me as well, is that you're going to have so much to try and figure out right off yeah. the bat. And as much as it's hard to have patience, this might be yeah. a time where on all sides, the best thing to do is to make sure yeah. we do it right. Um, yeah, we'll be able to, you know, I think the answer is to prioritize, right? I mean, we part of the IEP and the IEP meeting is having conversations about what's critically important, what will help you kind of get to the next level. And it's never linear. It's never like, oh, I do this, and then you start doing this, and then I do this. It sometimes looks so much more like scaffolding or steps, right? It's like, okay, we're working really hard over a period of time, sometimes doing the same thing for longer than I thought. And then all of a sudden, there's a jump, and you're able to, you know, kind of do those skills, and then we build on those skills and build on those skills. So I think at the moment we start to, to put some sort of time pressure 
on all of this, I, I think that's where we're gonna we're gonna struggle. That if we prioritize what we've lost or prioritize what we think we need to regain that that scaffolding or that footing, um, we'll be able to do this and just give each of just give all of us you know a little bit of uh, patience with some of this. Uh, so I, I think everybody needs to to heed that. I think mm -hmm. that's it's very important for us all to kind of take a step back and, and reevaluate. But uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything about the IEP process. And um, although you might have covered most of it in that uh, <laughs> Autism Speaks IEP guide, where where yeah. can people gain access to that? Where are we going yeah. into the IEP guide? So uh, Autism Speaks has been wonderful about creating toolkits um, for families, for um, individuals, for companies, for schools, you name it. We've tried to create a toolkit for it. But um, if you go to the um, autismspeaks.org website and you just in the search you know, box type in IEP, um, you'll get a bunch of information. But I think one of the big ones is going to be the toolkit. Um, that they provide on um, the IEP. And we really tried to make it uh, somewhat interactive. Um, the idea that it wasn't just uh, words, there are short little video clips that will kind of give you some guidance. And then you can kind of, it's almost like a choose your own adventure. You can click on and say, okay, I think I've got the basics. Let me get to what I got to know about developing the IEP. Or, you know, I've already got an IEP for my child, but I, I need more information about uh, changing the IEP or disputing the IEP or whatever it is. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of wonderful sections in there. So yeah, you could just go to autismspeaks.org, look under their toolkits, and you'll find the guide to IEPs. And, and you all should be very proud of the effort that you put into that. Not only is it very oh, informative, you. but it also is digestible, which I think is sometimes hard with an IEP yeah. and giving advice through the process is making it so that it's understood by every single person picking it up. Yeah. Um, and now you have a chance right now because, uh, Dr. Faustino, we have we typically have an audience that has parents and clinicians alike. Um, you have their ear. Uh, what sort of additional advice do you have to, to either group? about navigating and supporting and maybe even advocating for your child during the IEP process. Oh, it's like, I mean, we would almost need a whole nother podcast, I think for some of that, but, um, you know, I, I, I think you will find me saying this frequently when, you know, if, if we spent more time together, but it's the idea of connections, right? It's really that idea of connect to the school communicate with the school um, it, it, when you're able to find your advocate in the school building. I, I think school psychologists are pretty amazing, but it could be the classroom teacher. It could be the assistant principal. It could be the principal, could be the nurse. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful caring people inside the school, but if you're a parent, um, connect with the school, communicate with the school and um, you know, share your story. I think the observations and the things that you're worried about at home really do ring true. Um, I, I found myself telling parents a lot of times, you know, please don't don't um, beat yourself up about, you know, the 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 you know the whole experience or or you know parenting a child with special needs or with autism. You know, in the school building there's a whole team of professionals that are working with a child at home. Sometimes it's just mom or just dad or mom and dad, right? They're not, they don't often have that, that full spectrum of a team. Sometimes they are, you know, um, 
fortunate enough to have providers that are at home and and wonderful medical experts and and lots of other people on their team. But I think we've just got to remember that sometimes that uh, that we've got to share those stories and make connections. Now that proverb comes across way too frequently that it takes a village. And, yeah. And another one of those instances. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing your time with us, Dr. Faustina, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to connect again and, and learn even more about this, just because this is such a crucial uh, discussion piece for families to really understand and for clinicians to help support. So thank you for joining us. Agreed. And my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABS Kids. Dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.